In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning. Wonderful to see you all here. Well, it must have been about 15 years ago. I had this brief conversation with a newcomer to my church out in Northern California, a conversation I've never forgotten. This woman had shown up on a Sunday morning. She was a Buddhist in her 40s, and she told me that this was the first time that she had ever been to a Christian church. She said that she had a strong meditation practice, and earlier that week, in the middle of her morning meditation, she had this vision, an image of a chalice appeared in her mind, brilliant and shining in the light. And this gentle voice spoke with great authority directly into her heart one word, which was Jesus. She was kind of freaked out about this experience. Jesus? Really? It had never occurred to her to seek out Jesus or to go to a church for any reason. She had always thought of Christians as kind of strange and churches were kind of scary to her. But in obedience to that voice, she got online. She started learning about the meaning of the chalice and about what kinds of Christian churches think a chalice is important. And that's how she ended up at my church. So after she told me all this, I was dying to know, so, so what was it like for you to be with us in church? And she looked up at me with this kind of desperate confusion on her face. And she said, there's just so many words. (laughs) And then just two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I was talking to a, a member of this parish. And unlike my old friend, the newcomer, this person was a cradle Episcopalian. She knew the words of the liturgy by heart. But for the last 10 years or so, she had been practicing meditation as well. And she told me that as her meditation practice deepened, the hold that the church had on her was lessening more and more. She said these days she finds herself sitting in church and feeling increasingly confused by all of these obscure words and archaic stories. She said, all these words, they just don't mean much to me anymore. Well, my response to her was the same as my advice to my newcomer friend 15 years ago. I suggested that they approach the entire worship service as a meditation. I said, try this. When you come into the sanctuary and you sit down, straighten your spine, take some deep breaths, close your eyes, empty your mind, and see if you can't be fully present and deeply relaxed and wide awake throughout the whole service. When you sing the hymns, let the hymn sing through you. Let the music be your inhale. Let your prayers be your exhale. Try practicing a mindful presence throughout the service. See what happens. Well, I don't know if it was my advice or not, but the newcomer ended up 
coming every Sunday, getting very involved in the church, got baptized, in fact, and became a member of Vestry. As for the cradle Episcopalian, well, you know, we'll see. I'm hopeful. All I know is what happens for me when I do that, and I confess I don't always remember to be fully present during the service. But when I am, there's a certain kind of clarity that emerges. I find that my usual categories of good and bad, my habitual judgments of, yes, I agree with that, or no, I don't like that, or here we go again, mumbling the confession, all of those alienating judgments kind of fall away a little bit, and I start to see the drama that's unfolding around me more as this great tapestry of love and devotion, which is what it's supposed to be. In other words, as I get myself out of the way of church, church finally starts to be about God rather than about me. I begin to get a sense of what this whole business is about, after all, which is that I'm grounding my life, once again, in the root source of reality, which is not me, after all, but the God who lives in me and gives my life purpose and meaning. Evelyn Underhill, that amazing, groundbreaking contemplative, <clears throat> excuse me, of the early 20th century, she defined mysticism as the art of union with reality. Love that, such an elegant and precise definition, the art of union with reality. In other words, in contemplative practice, we learn how to remove ourselves just a little bit from the center of our universe. We get off the hamster wheel of I, I, me, me, mine. We begin to catch a glimpse of what reality is like in itself, as it is, rather than as we judge it or want it to be. And in the process, we begin to discover that we're no longer looking at reality, but rather reality is looking at us. That which we seek, we find out, is seeking us. This has a wonderfully clarifying effect on the mind. Because it turns out that God speaks in a language below the surface of mere words and opinions about those words. Our worship puts us in touch with more subterranean currents. This is the realm where sea monsters lurk in the deep and demons stalk the desert. It's a realm of wise men and fools, prostitutes and priests, lost coins, hidden treasures, and the invisible powers that send thunderstorms our way. And sometimes it's a world where death is as present as a tree it's as real as a stone bouncing off our head. It's as close as a best friend pointing us, pointing us out to the secret police. The readings we encounter today express that reality, the reality of death hanging over the scene like a shroud. 
As Samuel Johnson said, when a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. That's the kind of clarity of mind that Paul has as he writes from prison to the people in Philippi. He seems to be preparing himself for the likelihood that he will be executed, executed in the same shameful and brutal manner in which Jesus was executed. So the situation is rather grim. Paul can feel the end is near. And like most people in that situation, he's reflecting with stunning clarity on the questions that haunt us all as we approach our death. He's wondering, what have I accomplished? What's the value of my life? What has been my purpose? And did I succeed or fail? These are the clarifying questions that death brings up like a rude dinner guest. How do we even answer questions like that? In my experience in hospitals and hospice rooms over the years, those questions tend to be answered for us when the time comes. They have the quality of a judgment being delivered rather than an opinion being arrived at. Every person has their own internal measure as to whether or not they've succeeded in their life, and the prospect of death makes it impossible to ignore that judgment. So, how do we measure the value of our lives? How will we answer the clarifying questions of our deathbed? As Paul reflected on his life from that prison cell, he realized he was given every chance to succeed and he made the most of it. He was born with a brilliant mind, gifted with a first-rate education. He was ambitious and hardworking. He climbed the ladder that was set before him. He became a zealous and effective prosecutor in the cause of righteousness. Until, of course, that moment of reckoning on the road to Damascus when he realized he was no longer a prosecutor but a persecutor of God. And in that blinding flash of insight, he caught a glimpse of himself from outside himself. He had that mystical encounter with reality where he was no longer at the center of it all. Many of us never get that experience, but Paul was given that insight while still a young man, and as a result, everything changed. Suddenly, he was no longer living for himself, but for the God who lived in him. And so he devotes himself entirely to the spread of the gospel. He enjoys several solid years of incredibly productive work, and then finally, he's arrested for the last time, and the shroud of death returns. Under that, sh under that shadow, he writes with intense clarity, this letter to the Philippians, made even more vivid because now he knows exactly what success looks like. He knows exactly how to measure the value of his life. And it has nothing to do with his impressive lineage or his mastery of Greek and Hebrew or his brilliant career. I regard all of that as rubbish, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him.
The value of his life has nothing to do with whether or not he achieved his career goal or his personal outcomes. Rather, it has to do with whether or not he grounded his life on reality, which in his experience is synonymous with the God that is revealed in the love of Jesus Christ. Yes, he's in prison, condemned to death, but he writes as a free man, liberated from his own ego-driven needs and wants. All his attachments, all his desires, illusions, delusions, all those hungry ghosts, as the Buddhists say, they're no longer driving him. And he can take stock of his life in the light of God's reality, not his. In her book on Mary Magdalene, Cynthia Bourgeau says that Jesus' core teaching is not about clean living or purity. In other words, it's not about following the house rules, proving yourself worthy, living up to the judgments of your internalized parents or bosses or priests or peers or lovers. It's not about jumping through the hoops of achievement and ambition. Instead, she says, it's about the total immolation of the heart. The total immolation of the heart. That is what this entire enterprise is here to help us see. All these beautiful windows with their plaques that say, given to the glory of God. All of this fancy silver, these beautiful robes, these impressive ceilings, the magnificent music, the highfalutin verbiage. All of the resources of the church are here to serve this single flash of lightning insight, this devastating and awesome liberation from the prison of ourselves, this realization that in the end, it's never been about us. It's about the glory of God, which vibrates through the whole heart of the universe. It's about the body of Christ which hums through this congregation and through the substance of our being. It's about the healing power of God's love which finds us under the clarifying shadow of death on our knees and opening our hearts in joyful sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Amen.